Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends. Thank you for your time again today. Some folks you just can't reach, whether it be because of selfish pride, ignorance, or just plain since you thought of it, it's automatically wrong. As mankind moves on, it seems that they become more and more self-serving. Now that might be because they're looking for notoriety, power, or the oldest of all, money. Some who have achieved power and are in positions that are supposed to serve us as citizens find themselves in the position to make decisions that will affect many others. Whether it be for good or bad, some of these who are known as fine upstanding citizens will make this decision based on how it affects them rather than how it affects us. Instead of asking themselves what the right thing is to do, they ask themselves how the decision will affect their future ability to remain right where they are so they can, of course, continue to make bad decisions. Come on in and lend me your ears once again as I tell you about how one of these decisions completely wrecked the lives and families and even friends of the at least one victim. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is not what one would call being in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains, and I'm acutely aware of that fact, but when I became aware of this case, I felt that Philadelphia was close enough to be fudged in for this story. Sometimes stories just have to be told, and this is a glaring example of exactly that. Philly, as it's known, is the sixth most populous city in the United States and the most populous city in the state of Pennsylvania. It's one of the oldest municipalities in the United States. William Penn, an English Quaker, founded the city in 1682 to serve as the capital of Pennsylvania colony. And as we all know, Philadelphia played an instrumental role in the American Revolution as the meeting place for the founding fathers of our country, who signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776 at the Second Continental Congress and the Constitution at the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. 
But on June 8, 1974, Amy Willard was born to Gail Willard, who was a nurse at Riddle Memorial Hospital in Lima, and Paul Willard, a police officer in Chester. And even though her parents had been divorced for quite some time, it didn't strain the relationship between her and either of her parents. They all got along, as they say, swimmingly. Nothing stopped Amy from doing whatever she needed to do in order to accomplish her goals in life, especially when it came to her athletic ability. She had been a star lacrosse player and a soccer player at Notre Dame de Nemur, which was a high school in Villanova, Pennsylvania. By 1996, Amy was a student at George Mason University in Virginia. While there, she was ranked in top 25 female lacrosse players in the country. One of her many accomplishments at the college was breaking the school records for scoring and earning all regional, all-American honors in lacrosse. In June of 1996, Amy went home to Philadelphia for the summer break. There, she took summer classes at a local school just to cut another chunk out of her required credits for graduation. On the night of June 19th, she went to Smokey Joe's Tavern to meet some friends. The tavern was located in Wayne just outside of Philadelphia. Amy spent about three hours there, and she didn't even finish her drink. Friends would later say she left the bar between 1.30 and 1.40 in the morning. Only a short time later, at 2.03 a.m., an off-duty paramedic spotted her car. The car was found running with the headlights on, the radio playing, and the driver's side door standing open. It was abandoned on the shoulder of an off-ramp leading from Interstate 476 to Route 1. While there was no sign of Amy to be found, blood was found, including blood on the right side of the car and a guardrail. That, along with a bloody palm print, and the investigators also found tire tracks next to the scene belonging to a Firestone 440 13-inch tire. As they broadened the search, they located underwear and tennis shoes at a nearby ramp entrance. They would later be identified by her mother as items Amy was wearing that night. By that time, police had become extremely concerned about her well-being. It looked like maybe somebody had got her to pull over and abducted her right on the spot and had hurt her in the process. They wondered if maybe a person impersonating an officer could have pulled her over and maybe an actual officer even did it they didn't rule anything out at this point by the morning they brought out helicopters canines and search volunteers to look for amy a witness came forward saying that they'd seen amy's car the night before it would later be later that day that amy's naked body would be found in a vacant lot in north philadelphia at 16th and indiana streets nearly 20 miles from where the car was found. The rest of her clothing she wore out that night was never found. An autopsy was performed and it showed that she had been sexually assaulted and died from severe blunt force trauma. The investigators found several witnesses and after realizing that the man who said he saw Amy's car only lived five blocks from where the body was found, they thought that that would be a bit too convenient, so they 
may have already have a suspect if they were thinking about it, which they were, and so they dragged him downtown to answer a few questions before he cooperated fully. He then gave a consent for him to search his car where police found handcuffs and a flashlight carried by police officers. Certainly not normal to say the least. Good thing nothing like this happened to me when I was in the rescue squad because I had some odd stuff in my trunk back then too. The local sheriff's department would donate their old used equipment such as flashlights, jackets, and raincoats to the rescue squad for us to use. And as we've said here before, nobody can tell you what suspicious is, but you know it when you see it. So after finding all that, they got a warrant to search his home. Inside the man, who's now being referred to as suspects, in his home they found even more police paraphernalia and magazines that sold standard police equipment. Now that's not looking good for him at all, is it, folks? Looking into his background, they found that he had previously been charged with impersonating an officer. It was around that time that he stopped cooperating and asked for a lawyer which is probably the smartest thing he could have done at that point. He also recanted his story and said that he never was on the own ramp and never saw Amy's car that night, and uh, so it was looking even worse for him now. A Pennsylvania state trooper who was off duty the night of Amy's murder came forward with the information. He said on the night of June 19th, he saw not just Amy's car, but a squad car and an officer parked behind her. He said that he pull over and spoke with the officer briefly briefly before continuing on his way. Stick around, folks. You ain't gonna believe where this goes. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Investigators working Amy's murder case said that they now were suspicious of the state trooper because they found information that he was in a different location at the time that he claimed to be next to the crime scene, but the trooper stuck to his story. A week after this, a local police officer said that he had pulled Amy over, but claimed that no state trooper stopped to talk to him, but he did say he saw an off-duty paramedic parked behind the car. The paramedic that called the abandoned car into the police, in fact. They will then went and questioned the paramedic again, and he claimed that there was no local police in that area that night, and he spoke to no officers at all. When the investigators went back and dragged the local cop in for some more questions, finally the moron admitted to lying and resigned from the force. So this whole thing was turning into just a plain old hot mess. With more suspects now than you could shake a stick at, including the police impersonator, the off-duty state trooper and the local police officer they all uh, had after all stuck to themselves right in, or stuck themselves right in the middle of the investigation without no reason whatsoever so yeah that makes you a suspect in my book the police impersonator worked near the area where amy's body was found the state trooper uh, only lived a block away from amy's family's home and a local police officer frequently visited the hospital where amy's mother worked her family said that Amy wouldn't have just stopped for anybody along the road. This made the investigators feel sure that it had to have come, become from a person of authority that had stopped Amy. Police were nearly at a stalemate and needed something to break it. 
that something came in December of 1997 when a 19-year-old woman reported an attempted carjacking. She said that a man had followed her after she left a nightclub. While she was driving, he rammed into the back of her car, then attempted to get her to pull over. She refused. She drove off but wrote down his license plate number. He had picked on the wrong girl to mess with this time because she was the daughter of a police officer and had been instructed how to handle these situations. Police ran the license plate and the registration came back to a Arthur Jerome Bomar, Jr. They then ran a search of his record and that's when their jaws hit the floor. Mr. Bomar had been convicted of murder in Nevada in 1978. He had killed a woman in a parking lot over a parking space. He had been sentenced to life for the murder, but he had been let out early on after just serving 11 years. His rap sheet also detailed several assaults on young women over the years. Mr. Bomar had also been charged with the attempted murder of a woman named Teresa Thompson, but she died of an overdose before the case could go to trial. Now that's when the charges were dropped and he was released. And lastly, he had a rape complaint from a college student right there in the Philadelphia area. Now, that looks more like a suspect, don't it, folks? And that's exactly what the investigators thought, too. They looked into connecting this Bomar fella to Amy's murder. The night of the murder, Mr. Bomar was in the area. He had been pulled over by police only six blocks from where the body of Amy had been dumped. Police realized that they needed to question this guy, but he was nowhere to be found. A few days later, though, he landed right in their laps. He was arrested trying to break into a woman's apartment. In fact, they caught him with his front half in her window and hadn't yet been able to get his hindquarters inside. When he was dragged in, they found a set of Honda keys in his pocket. An external search of the vehicle found that the plates belonged to the to the convict, and but. The other car was registered to Maria Cabuenos. She was, she had disappeared three months earlier, having last been seen on Route 476, right where Amy had been lost. I bet he gets a chance to explain all that very soon, don't you folks? Well, police got a warrant to search the inside of the car and found dried blood and that both bumpers had scrape marks on them as well. When questioned about June 19, 1996, the genius said that he had been at a birthday party. They could check with his fiancée. The police took him up on his offer and went to see the woman. One thing these masterminds never understand is that you can't treat somebody like a dog and then expect them to alibi you out of murder. His fiancée laid him to the bone, telling the police that Mr. Bomar had been at Smokey Joe's Tavern all night long and that... He refused to show up for a birthday party. I guess he thought they'd never figure that out, huh? Mr. Bomar, his actual car, a Ford Escort, was finally found and searched for evidence. They found the front bumper had marks on it, the kind left from a bump in a car. The tires were also a perfect match for the impressions left at the scene of Amy's case. Blood located in the car came back as a DNA match to Amy. Also, 
underneath the vehicle, the oil pan had a distinct mark on it that matched a burn mark that had been left on Amy's upper body. The final undeniable proof came when the murder's DNA matched semen in Amy's body. Seems to me that that would cinch it up for her. Don't it you? But police came up with a theory about what had happened to, based on what they had found. They believed that the Mr. Bomar saw Amy at the bar and followed her out. He drove behind her car on Route 476 where he used the same old ruse of bumping the back of Amy's car. Both cars did show transferred on each other's bumpers. They think that's when Amy got out of her car willingly to exchange information with the driver and that's when the animal attacked her. He hit her on the head with a tire iron and then shoved her into his car. He threw out her clothes and everything along the way. Maybe when he stopped and assaulted her, that's when he threw some of it out as well. With that information, they had enough to charge Arthur Jerome Bomar Jr. with the murder of Amy Willard. He was tried and convicted of her murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. During his sentencing, he flipped off Amy's mother and yelled at her, go F yourself and your two kids. Currently, this piece of human waste is sitting on death row. He has not been charged with Maria Cabueno's case, but it is believed she suffered the same fate as Amy. And I'd say that maybe some charges are coming on that one sooner or later. This time, and yes, it's a little too late for Amy and Maria, but at least he'll never see the light of day outside a cell again. And if the great state of Pennsylvania has its way, he won't be breathing their air much longer either there's one thing i hope these <clears throat> who set the animal free in society are no longer in the position to do so again if they are we all could be in trouble because who knows where the <clears throat> one of these murders will show up next or who they'll kill next we see way too much of this in today's world in cases like this life should mean life i hope you got something out of our story today that needed to be told if you did, please rate and review the podcast. Don't forget to follow. If you'd like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to the Deviant Report, which comes out as I collect enough of the stories to make an episode, consider becoming a subscriber to $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three podcasts. Please join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend. See you then.